questions or concerns before we depart, Captain? If you're telling me that this ship can skip across the universe on a highway made of mushrooms, I kind of have to go in faith. Welcome to Rediscovery, the Star Trek recap podcast that knows the real Red Angel is Ensign Sylvia Tilly. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Ben McKenzie, and this episode I'm discussing the second episode of Season 2, New Eden, with our own cadet who's fast-tracked on the command training program. It's Carla Donnelly. Hi, Carla. Hello. I was actually the second youngest person ever to enter the cadet training program. All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Just behind Tilly. Just behind course. Tilly. Yeah. Yeah. We can't be better than her. No one's better than her. <laughs> uh, well, let, let's get straight into it. This week's episode, New Eden visits some classic Star Trek themes and tropes, humans from the past displaced in time and space, the ethics of interfering in other cultures, even when those cultures have grown from ours and the tensions of belief between science and religion. It also advances several plot threads and deepens the mysteries introduced at the season's beginning, while also providing many moments for both the core and supporting cast to shine. New Eden keeps up the mood of fun and adventure introduced in Brother, while also introducing strong themes of trust and faith. If season one was about recognising trauma, season two is shaping up to be about healing from it. Now we pick up where we left off in Brother with Burnham playing Spock's log for Pike and showing him the drawings that prove Spock saw the red bursts two months before they happened. Pike reveals that Spock isn't just on leave but submitted himself to psychiatric care, requesting no contact with his family. Pike tries to convince Burnham that she could reach out to him and she almost tells him about the Red Angel. Then the Discovery receives a priority message. A new red burst has appeared. Tilly and Burnham track the burst to the Beta Quadrant, 50,000 light-years away. Deciding that the mission is important enough to use the spore drive, Stamets straps in and the Discovery hops to the planet of Terralysium. But again, there's no sign of the Red Burst. Instead, they find a human distress call that's been looping for 200 years and several communities of humans who appear to be from mid-21st century Earth. Since they're from pre-warp Earth, General Order 1, also known as the Prime Directive, applies, and Pike takes Burnham and Awashikun down in disguise to investigate without interfering. On the planet's surface, the away team discover a peaceful, low-tech culture based around an old church, the source of the distress call, combining many of Earth's major religions into a single faith. One man, Jacob, is descended from scientists and seems to suspect the visitors are not from the Northern Territory, as they claim, but they stick to their story and head off to investigate the church and find the source of the signal. Inside the church, the away team find the source of the distress call in the basement. It has been jerry-rigged, suggesting that at least one person in New Eden knows there might be other beings out there. And indeed, right at its discovery, Jacob pops out and busts their cover. His family has tended to the signal for generations, hoping and believing that someone else was out there. When Pike tries to neutralise the situation, lying to Jacob about their origins and technology, Jacob becomes desperate and sets off a stun bomb, stealing their weapons and instruments to use as evidence of their advanced technology. As the away team come to, they break out of the basement and run to the town square to find Jacob showing their equipment to the townspeople. A small girl is playing with a phaser, accidentally turns it on, and wish he was my dad, Captain Pike, throws himself onto it, shooting himself in the chest. Michael and Joanna beg to take Captain Pike to the church to pray, locking the doors behind them. 
Jacob, knowing this might be his last chance to see these aliens, kicks down the door to see them being beamed away. The townsfolk interpret this as the red angel ascending them to heaven. On the discovery, an extinction-level radiation event is found to be imminent, Saru ruminating that this may be why they were brought here. Through Tilly's ingenuity, Detmer's burnout power and the mycelial network, they were able to deposit the non-baryonic asteroid into the field of radiated debris, drawing it away from Terralisium and saving the planet. Pike makes one more trip to New Eden to tell Jacob the truth and make an exchange, a power cell for a World War III helmet left behind by one of the original settlers. Pike accesses the footage on the helmet and sees another red angel. This episode heavily focuses on magnetism and gravity, the way we relate to each other, in the way that the universe dances together. Ben, there was so much in this episode that I have to admit I welled up many times. This is prime sci-fi and Star Trek territory, moral and ethical philosophy. I had many feels. Where should we begin? Well, I think let's go right back to the start of the episode, because one thing I noticed is that 10 minutes had passed before the credits even rolled, and I was so enthralled by that point. I was like, what? It's been 10 minutes already. This is insane. And so much happens. Like, we get the recap of Spock. But I think one of the key things for the themes of the episode happens right at the start, which is where, um, you know, Pike tells Burnham that she can trust him, and she's about to tell him about the Red Angel, and then... Doesn't. She doesn't, yeah. But by the episode's end, she does. And mm. there's also a moment a little bit after that where Stamets reveals to Tilly for the first time he's told anyone that he saw Hugh in the mycelial network. And I love that about this episode where people are coming clean with their secrets. They're trusting mm. in other members of the crew. And so often in all drama, and this has been a big thing ever since kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer changed a bit sort of how we thought about TV shows – where people just, like, they create drama by people just not telling each other what's going on. Mm. And I loved so much, because that's one of the things that drives me up the wall in these shows, but I loved so much that this episode was about the opposite of that, people deciding to trust each other and tell each other what's going on, which means, like, the the plot's going to go even further than it could if people were keeping this stuff to themselves. But it also has a major element of that in terms of Spock not telling anyone anything about anything well yeah that is true and he is uh, but i think you know we're going to have that episode whenever that happens and maybe it's next week maybe it's in a few more weeks i don't know where we finally meet him uh, and we'll see what he's got to say and i think i think that'll be really interesting to see how trusting he is and whether he's as forthcoming as Damitz and burnham are in this episode sure uh, I watched this twice as I do for each episode. And the first one, I was a bit on the fence, like, oh no, is this, what is this touched by an angel territory that we're going into? <laughs> yeah. There's ghosts and, you know. But really, the thing that struck me the most, hearing it several times now, is how absurdly emotional Spock's final log was. Mm. I'm like, it's just, it's so not Vulcan, like to have such a drama, like this may be my last log on the Star Trek Enterprise. It's like, whoa, yeah. man. Yeah. So he's obviously in a bad place. And also like, that would probably be the biggest shame for a Vulcan to go to a psychiatric institute because their entire race and culture is about mastering the psyche. Yeah. Well, well mastering your emotions. I, I would hope that they're enlightened enough to recognize mental illness as a... <laughs> As a thing, you know. It doesn't seem that way. No, Paul it doesn't. Michael has been traumatised. Maybe that's just Sarek's a bad dad and it's not indicative of Vulcans. We can hope so. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that about Spock's message. And it reminds me of so often when you see – I was watching an episode of Enterprise the other day 
where this happened, where one of the senior Vulcans is talking to one of the senior humans in Starfleet. And he's so emotional, but he's talking in an even tone. And you're like, that doesn't mean you're not emotional, mate. <laughs> yeah. like, we've all seen that trick. Like, that's that's what idiots on the internet use. Um, it's you're, Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that is interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, that's it's a it's a great start to the episode. Like we just get straight into it. Um, suddenly we're on the other side of the universe. What does it all mean? Well, I don't. What is happening? You know, I the Red Angel thing. The thing I like about it is that they've already set up this idea. Is that you know, are we being sent to places? And they've already like full on just come out and said Clark's Law. You know, like sufficiently advanced technology indistinguishable from magic. And they go so far as to explicitly say, you know, sufficiently advanced aliens are basically gods, Mm. which is such a recurring theme in all of Star Trek. Like you watch the original series and it's like every third episode is they meet some godlike being with incredible powers. Um, And they did it in, you know, the next gen era too, but a bit less often. But I think that that's also like very much wraps up the colonialist attitudes and that's something that really comes across quite heavily because I think in the first season there wasn't they talked about them needing something like a prime directive oh no that was in Enterprise I just watched Enterprise last week yeah Yeah. so we have the prime directive and or general order one general order one they refuse to call it the prime directive in Discovery I don't know why that is we have general order one and you've all, look, they're always breaking it left, right and centre, you know, like it's not worth the paper that's written on for any of these <laughs> star travellers. Well, you know, they, they, they angst about it, you know, <laughs> so I think that's worthwhile. I liked the way that it gets broken in this episode. Yeah, and I do too. It's compassion. Yeah. And I think the one thing that I was disappointed by is they never brought Saru into that loop because his circumstance is basically identical Preach. to Jacob's, it's right? It's exactly the same. So there's precedent for one thing. Mm. And secondly, he would surely have an opinion. He'd be like, yeah, why don't we take this guy with us? Like he knows. I was I was waiting for them to take him with them. Yeah, I was waiting for that I too. wanted Jacob to go with them so bad. But I knew when they got to the end, he didn't seem to want to go with them. He was content just to know that he was right. Yeah. And for them to have given him something that would help his people. Uh, and, and, you know, and he said they'd be back, so maybe they'll come back. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, they're very far away. I mean, that was another thing I enjoyed about this is that, you know, this is, they're, they're 50,000 light years across the galaxy. And I, last, last episode I did talk about how uh, I wanted to look up how the quadrant system works. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so basically the quadrant system is dividing the entire gal- the Milky Way galaxy because Star Trek only happens in the Milky Way galaxy. They don't go across the whole universe mm. uh, into four parts. And Earth is actually right near the border between the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. So if you imagine it like a map you know, with North, South, uh, East and West, mm-hmm. um, Earth is kind of like quite far down on the south, right in the middle of the south en- edge of the map. Okay. Um, and that's where most of the known space is. That's where all the other races and, and species that the humans have met. So that's where like Vulcan space is and the Ferengi and the Klingon Empire and the Romulan Empire. But it's right near the border of the Alpha Quadrant and the Beta Quadrant, which are kind of like in the south West is the Alpha Quadrant. The South East is the Beta Quadrant, and um, and but it's huge. And mm. and I was way off with my estimate last episode too. Like the the galaxy is more like a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand light years from one end to the other. It's quite mm. a lot bigger mm. than the thirty thousand light years. Um, and so fifty thousand light years is like a third of the way across the galaxy, and it's quite far into the Beta Quadrant, like way further than ever's been explored. Mm. Uh, so this is this is a significant trip. And it also means that there's, you know, the discovery this season seems to, it's going to go to places that no starship has been before. Right. You know? And so we, to me, it automatically kind of skips ahead. It's like, well, where does this end? 
Mm. You know, how does this get wrapped up? Do they eventually jump somewhere that they never come back from? Oh, yeah. You know, and this is why humans are found in all all quadrants or the the you know the the memory of them or the history of them the knowledge of them yeah it could happen so we have the red angel who has transported this church of people <laughs> yeah from earth obviously americans of course yeah to this planet in the beta quadrant mm. and the, this red angel is also leading the discovery from one to the other spock is somehow involved with his visions that have driven him mad yeah um we've got the ghost of hugh on the network oh that was seen with oh stamets and tilly are killing me this season so beautiful oh my god and it but and i love that when he comes out of the spore drive chamber he does like he's clearly upset and he doesn't want to talk to tilly but we never find out why is he upset know, because he was about? there was he upset because he wasn't there we don't know and you know presumably we'll find out but um i mean i'm guessing he wasn't there that would be my feeling uh and that he was upset not to see him but you know either way how are you going to you're not going to feel good about it either way are you no and the whole process seems to take things out of him and also that was i had my question answered which was they were taking it offline because it's unethical yeah well because <laughs> to use it. because it's illegal to do that sort of genetic manipulation ever yeah. since the eugenics wars yes. um that predate Actually, World War Three, which uh, is one of the things so I that's coming talk up. About. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's happening. It's happening any time now. I'm worried. It's already happening in China, but oh, anyway, that's no. a conversation for another time. Oh no! Uh, and then, what other ghosts do we have? We have Tilly's old schoolmate. Oh, that was such a good little subplot. I mean, like Tilly. Tilly has a great. This is a great Tilly episode. Yes. Uh, and look, I'm I'm on board anytime. Um, uh, the real Red Angel comes along. <laughs> Uh, but she, you know, she's got her own thing going on. She's she's contributing so much to the crew now. Like she has the, uh, and her idea doesn't quite work. Burnham has to come up with a slightly better one or a modification of it to find the signal so they can track it. But then she's she's still doing things like Samet said in the first episode, out of love. Mm. You know, she goes off and does this dangerous experiment by herself because she's desperate now to find a way to use the spore drive without Stamets having to pilot it so he doesn't have to go in there and maybe have to confront the ghost of Hugh. Mm. And uh, and I was kind of disappointed that we didn't see Hugh this episode, actually, speaking of him. Yeah, or Jet. Yeah, yeah, where'd she go? Yeah. I mean, well, she's not part of the crew, so presumably they took her home, but hopefully she comes back. I mean, you don't... I, mean, you don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened to her at the end of last You don't get Tignataro to play an awesome character and then just put her in one episode. Surely, surely she's going to come back. And that... Okay. Anyway. We'll, we'll just we'll put a pin in that. We'll put as a they pin say. In that. Let's come back to Tilly. So yeah, she's doing this dangerous experiment and nearly gets herself killed, cutting a little bit off the the giant space rock that's made partly of possibly dark matter. We don't know, uh, and then ends up in the sick bay where we we also meet the new medical officer again, who's like she's not in it much. <laughs> so we haven't got to know her yet, but she's got a bit of sass on her as well. Yeah, she's cut from a little bit of the McCoy cloth, I think, yeah. just telling patients what to do. Um, but yeah, I I did find. Did you twig that something weird was going on with her friend? Look, this is going to sound incredibly racist, but I couldn't figure out her accent for a very long time. And I was like, is this some kind of magical elf thing? Like, right. I thought, you know, like her high-pitched voice and her thick accent, which sounds like Caribbean or Jamaican or something like that. Mm. It, it just kind of, it something t- did twig in me, but I was sort of churning the cogs to kind of understand. So I was a bit 
on notice. What about you? Not when she first appeared. When I first appeared, I was just like, who is this person? We've never seen her before. But there was that familiarity between them where I was like, that's a bit weird. I think that was the thing that twigged it for me. It's like she was very familiar with Tilly and Tilly's like, yeah, I kind of know who you are. And then towards the end, though, I started to get that sort of sixth sense feeling of, spoiler for the sixth sense, that no one else could see her. Like, I was like, did she talk to anyone else? And she kind of refers to, she's like, she calls out for help when Tilly's trying to get out of the bed in the medical bay. But Disappears the, the others, the others don't actually speak to her mm. or say anything to her. They only talk directly to Tilly. And I, I didn't twig that at the time, but a bit later on in the episode, I was like, "Is anyone else seeing her? <laughs> is she real?" And then, yeah, when she when she was in her quarters looking her up, I was like, "She's going to turn out not to exist <laughs> or be dead." I didn't. I didn't think she'd be dead. I thought she might not be real. But then it turned out she was a friend of Tilly's, and then she was dead. I was like, "Whoa, okay." And this is where, like, the first watch I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm a bit turned off by this whole thing, like, this sort of touch by an angel territory, as I said. Mm. But then on the second watch, you know, especially with the, you know, the, the, the very, very large intersection of the Venn diagram between religion and science, which is essentially devotion mm. and searching, mm. you know, um, that's where it actually became very meta for me because it, 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 schooled me on my own feelings hmm. i was like you know you had all these feelings about the first the first time you watched it and then the second time it's like well why can't i suspend my belief in this environment for it to be you know why do i have to want it to be entirely about science and you know it's it's a fantasy it's a fiction fantasy show yeah you know so i found that really really fascinating that it sort of turned that machinations on in my mind hmm. well you know look it's no star trek five okay they're not crossing the great barrier to meet god <laughs> But it's, I think, yeah, for me, I think the thing that really kept me on board, really into it, was that they're questioning it from the start. Burnham is, you know, she's been schooled on Vulcan. She's a science officer. She's very down the line. Like, when they're meeting all of the villagers on the planet, she's the one who's like, don't you have anyone who's into science? Like, are you all religious people? Yeah. And, and I quite enjoyed that she was there, but not dismissing their beliefs, but just asking, don't you all have anyone who believes something different as well? I feel like she was judgy. She was a bit judgy, I agree. But I think her questioning and then other people going, well, look, it could be something I really enjoyed. Like, I wasn't on her side, but I liked that there were both sides there and that people were stepping in, Pike particularly, Hmm. whose dad, as we find out in this episode, was both um, a science lecturer and a comparative religion teacher, (laughs) which I thought was awesome. Um, So he's like stepping in going, no, it's okay. Why not both? You know, he's doing the meme. Yeah, he's like, well, can you prove that they don't exist? Yeah. And I I liked that it's questioning that. Hmm. Whereas shows that just are like, those of you who are questioning it are just wrong. You know, I don't like it when it goes either way with that. Mm. And that's why, like, for example, The OA. I don't know if you've seen that yeah, show on I've Netflix. I Like, I... Have... Also starring Jason Isaacs. Yes, who I love. <laughs> um, but I got about halfway through it and I'm like, I don't think I like where this is going. Like, it was all to, you people who don't believe in mysticism, there's something wrong with you for me. And... um and not questioning enough. Yeah, it's very jump and the safety net appear will appear kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, which, yeah not my bag. Um, but this I was really into. And look... I think it did a very deft uh, understanding or didactic telling of the kernel of the truth that everybody seeks in these realms, mm. which is to understand the invisible, to make the invisible tangible, Yeah, you know, and that it does take a leap of faith to do that or to seek it. 
And that's what I found really beautiful about Jacob and his character and his family. And I'm just like, yes, you're keeping the flame of science alive, you know, and that they were so just very quietly working in the background. And that is most scientists as well. They're just quietly working away in the background, you know, getting shafted, not getting any funding, Yeah, you know, understanding things about the world that they're trying to tell us that nobody is receptive to, you know. It was a really interesting crossover of themes because my other podcast, Pratt Chat, the book we're reading for the next episode is Small Gods, which is about that clash between, you know, sort of science and religion because it's all about there's a, you know, a, a nation who has a god, but the bureaucracy of the religion has built up so much bigger than the faith that originally fueled it. And people now mostly act out of fear of what the Inquisition will do to them rather than you know, real belief in the religion itself. And then there's this counter movement of people who found this um, treatise written by the philosopher Didactylos telling them that <laughs> the world is on a turtle. And so their catch cry becomes the turtle moves. And it's kind of, it's very much a parallel to like what Galileo was saying about the earth moving around the sun. Um, and so, yeah, I found that really weird that there's the same <laughs> themes cropping up in both podcasts. Yeah, because guess what? We keep talking about it. Yeah, well, we can't Because people stop. aren't getting it. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It's also like so navel gazy that we continue to just try to get, you know, to the edges of it. Yeah. And it just keeps expanding out. Yeah. Now, I I also really liked the way that we had this sort of parallel threats going on. I mean, in our synopsis, we sort of bunched up the threads together because it's a lot easier to follow. Yeah, I was going to call it the B plot, but really I felt that was a bit mean. So I yeah, took no, it out. It's, <laughs> it's just another aspect to the A plot. I felt like it was yeah. all very it was all t- very tightly interwoven. And I like that about Discovery. They're very good at having, like they don't have a B plot that's got absolutely nothing to do with the A plot until, you know, it becomes convenient for it to be a deus ex machina. They really sort of set up things that make sense. And you could argue that about the space rock being the thing that they need to save the planet from the rings or whatever, but I actually thought it all came together really nicely. Uh, and I, and I just, I just love the way the bridge crew are all working together. Uh, and I love that again, you know, I'm, it's, I'm hoping that, you know, a Washington's adventure, this episode is a sign that we're going to see that from the other like incidental members of the crew like they're all going to get their episode where they get to shine because she's awesome in this like she's just on the she's on it like they get stuck she's like oh yeah i can get us out of here yeah and she like gets them out of the um, basement where they're locked in on, in the church um and you're like this is great like yeah give everybody a cool moment and that also at that point in time there's still luddites yeah which i found you know, fascinating. And then, of course, obviously, she's in Starfleet. Yeah, so she's left. There's little Easter eggs. I mean, maybe she's going back. Maybe she's on Rumspringer. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We we just don't know. I think Starfleet training takes a lot longer than a Rumspringer period of time. Mm, Yeah, I guess so. So we think the the implications for this is, so now what there's seven births we've done two, are we going to do the other five? Is that what's going to happen? No, because this is a new one. Right, so the the seven... I didn't didn't catch that. I had to go back and check this, but when I was sort of looking over my notes, I was like, hang on a minute, because the original seven are spread out over 30,000 light years. This one's more than 50,000 light years away, so it can't be one of the original seven, and they refer to it as a new signal when Saru um, reports it. So it's almost as if the seven original ones were to get their attention, and then they left one of them as like, this is where we want you to go, and now they're just going to fire up a new one wherever they want the discovery to go. If, you know, if that's what it turns out to be, if, if they're being directed to places. But I think, I mean, it seems like 
clearly the first one, here's a crashed Federation starship you've got to save. The second one, here's a population of humans that we saved 200 years ago and we need you to like save them again now from this imminent danger of the radiation, right? Oh, and we haven't even mentioned the donut. Yes. Which people are calling the uh, Detmer Drift on, <laughs> on Twitter. That's the official hashtag now. I would now. totally play that video game. <laughs> oh, so good. I thought that do, was cool. Do you think Tilly is kind of going down Manic Pixie Engineer Girl <laughs> territory? Look, I, that's a good point. I, I hope not. I mean, I think her friendship with Stamets like- is very grounding for her. And I also feel like she's been developed enough for that not to be that. Yeah. I think she, you know, she's enthusiastic and she's... She's just full of ideas. But she's not... And obviously super intelligent. Yeah. And she's also on her own story. I mean, I think the, the there's a lot of writing about Manic Pixie Dream Girl stuff. And I think one of the key things that makes it a harmful trope is that they're totally in service to the story of a, usually a man. Right. And I don't feel that Tilly is. You know, like she's got various, she's got multiple friendships and now she's got her own mystery. Mm. You know, she's got her own plot line, which she didn't really have in the first season. She was very much a supporting character for Michael. uh, And now she is, you know, coming into her own. She's doing her own stuff. She's getting herself into trouble. She's getting herself out of trouble. And we've also seen her be very capable right from the start. Mm. You know, like we talked about in a season one recap episode when she's on the Glen on that first away mission, she's onto it. So, yeah, I think they're going to steer clear of that territory. Can you think of a character in the past that has kind of had this comic relief but has been so prominent? I mean, Neelix was kind of like that. Mm. Dr. Flox is a bit like that on Enterprise. Very much. And I think I think you could argue Data sometimes fills that role. Yes. Uh, as well. And um, They're all bridge crew. They're all bridge kind crew, of, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, oh, well, Barclay. Reginald Barclay from Next Gen. Ah. He's, cause he's sort of that nervous character. <laughs> and you think, this guy's just a Bravo. nerd. excellent. But, you know, Tilly's... <laughs> we, could talk, we could do a whole episode on Reginald Barclay. We could, oh. What a character. Yeah. Look, if we ever do any non-Discovery episodes, we'll talk <laughs> about him for sure. All right. Shall we move on to short chats? I think it's time. And now, Rediscovery Short Chats. This is our section at the end of the episode where we talk news, trivia, and anything related to Discovery. We'll also happily answer listener questions in this section. So send us some via social media. You'll find us at Rediscovery Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Now, what do you want to talk about this time around, Carla? All right. So a couple of things I picked up. One was, (laughs) this very much raised my eyebrow, that uh, a planet that now has 11,000 people was germinated from 200 survivors. Over 200 years. <laughs> Over 200 years. I haven't done any modeling, but I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Well, yeah, I guess it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess their genetic diversity is not going to be high either. It's no, not- that, that was also my big question mark. Oh. I was almost going to Google, like, how many people do you have to have in a community before <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> for, gonna, a healthy, for a healthy DNA strand. They're going to end up with facial tumor disease like the <laughs> Tasmanian devil. Oh, dear. So that was one that I had. Mm. Um, also, obviously, Jonathan Frakes, oh, yeah. number one, directed this episode. I really enjoyed seeing his name in the credits. Has he, he directed some episodes of season one. Uh, yeah, I think he directed the one after the season after the mid-season break, which is the one where they're in the Terran universe. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he directed that one. He's directed many episodes of other Star Trek. He's good. You know, he's directed some of the films as well. He directed, yeah. I think he directed Insurrection, which as I have previously mentioned is my favourite <laughs> of the films. Just marry Insurrection, Ben. Oh, it's so good. 
So that's exciting as well. And he calls himself a recovering actor on his Twitter. But then also he sort of let fly about a few things about the new Picard show, saying that it's Picard is retired. When you say let fly, do you mean he's complaining or he's just like like, uh, leaking? gossiping. He's leaking out. And he cannot, quote unquote, you know... um, Confirm or deny whether he's in the new show. <laughs> you might think that, but I couldn't possibly confirm. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Yeah, why? Well, They're ha- my two things. I mean, they many of the cast have said that they have not been asked to be in the Picard show, but I think, um, yeah, surely at least some of them will show up in, in guest roles at some point. Um, look, I quite enjoyed that we had some references to World War Three um, because I I'm a sucker for alternate histories, and one of the things I love about a a long, you know, a big sci-fi universe, particularly one that's set in the future, is that they have to decide what happened between the present and the fictional future. And now we're touching on World War Three, and it refers back to parts of the Star Trek universe we've seen before. So these people are from the tw- early 2050s. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if I got my years right, I, I think, think they're... I think it's 2060. Uh, no, they're from like 2050. I think it was 2051. They do mention a year in the episode, but I've forgotten what it was. But I did look it up, and I think it's only like a year or two before the end of World War Three. So, you know, if they just waited it out a little bit longer, they could have stayed at home, but probably they were about to be blown up. And that's... I don't ten- think they had a choice. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Um, but that's 10 years or so, a bit more than 10 years before when Zephyrin Cochran first um, flies a warp engine and makes contact with the Vulcans, yes. which is in 2063, yes. which is not that far in our future, really. No, we'll be alive. <laughs> we'll be alive For then. 60 million people to die in World War Three. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's disappointing. I mean, yeah, because that's after World War Three, but there's basically half the planet's destroyed and there's a lot of dead people. <laughs> it's not good. Um, so, yeah, I quite liked that. A uh, little bit of past history. Um, I also like to, this is, you know, it's returning to tropes that we've seen in other Star Trek shows that so far Discovery hasn't done. They don't do a lot of first contact with alien species. They don't do a lot of, like, resolving diplomatic tensions mm. because we're at war. So it was mostly about Klingons and fighting the war and finding ways to get around that. Wearing civvies. Yeah. Whereas this time, it was nice to see them get into disguise and go yeah. down onto the planet. Yeah. I mean, I've just been, I think we've both been watching Enterprise really for the first time. Mm. And there's a couple of early episodes of that, like Terra Nova, where they um, they go and they find this planet, which was like the first planet colonized by humans. And now there's like the descendants of those humans who call themselves Novans and their whole society has kind of fallen apart a bit because a lot of, of them, radiation all again. the adults got killed. Yeah, because of radiation. And I'm like, oh, this is a nice parallel. It's a similar kind of story but not the sort of thing we've seen Discovery do before. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that that means we might see a new take because I liked their new take on it. And I, I think we'll see, I hope we'll see some more of that kind of stuff later in the season. Well, and not to, you know, overuse the word magnetic, but Pike is just, he's such, he really has that star power and you can't, the camera loves him. Everybody loves him. You can't stop looking at him. I don't know if that's just me, but. No, uh, he's a very handsome man. He, but he's becoming like the gravitational pull, like the center of that universe. I don't know. How do you feel? Do you feel like he's taking up a lot of space? I feel he's taking up quite a lot of space for sure. And it's interesting that, you know, one of the draw cards for Discovery supposedly was this is going to be the first show where the main character is not a captain. But I would argue that in Star Trek, the original series, yeah, you had sort of your three main characters and then this sort of larger supporting cast who you'd only ever see two or three of them in any particular episode. In Next Gen, it was a bit less like that and the ensemble cast got bigger and there's probably like five or six members of the cast who you'd see in nearly every episode. And in Discovery, it's kind of... 
a little bit like that. And Michael, yes, is still the main character. But now also Michael has been reinstated in rank and is basically number one on the bridge or yes. close to it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's not, I don't think it's as distinguishable from that anymore. But I like that Pike is kind of integrated more into what's going on. I think we're just getting to know him still. Yeah. But at the end of the day, he's a leader. He has to make the decisions, you know. He seems, I fe- he feels more present than Lorca was because Lorca was obviously, they always had to keep him a bit secretive because they had the big secret about him they didn't want to but reveal. he was also scheming all the time, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. He was delicious. Oh, <laughs> I miss him so much. Well, it's okay. We'll see good Lorca again soon. And what uh, is he like? Oh, yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because we know how different in personality the other sort of Terrans and, and our universe folks are. So it'll be yeah, it'll be really interesting if we do get to see him. But no, I think I think you're right. He's he's super magnetic. He's he's wonderful. Um, I, I he did not win our Space Dads poll on Twitter. Yes, talk about the Space Dads. Well, like we because people have referred to him as a Space Dad, and he is. He's like the kind of guy you're like. I want you to be my dad. You're the best dad ever. Uh, and I thought, well, let's have a poll because my favorite Space Dad in Star Trek is Tuvok. Um, and so I, we created a poll. The options were: Who's your favorite Space Dad? Captain Pike. Uh, Tuvok, Benjamin Sisko, or Worf. And of course, I picked three actual dads from the show, as in they play mm. the characters are dads as well. Um, and not a lot of love for Tuvok. No. Hardly any love for Worf. A little well, bit of love for Captain Pike. Mm. I mean, Worf's a tricky one. He has, sort of has his fathership thrust on him and he's kind of busy doing other things. Um, but loads of love for Commander Benjamin Sisko. Because he was such a great dad. He is such a great dad. But I can't I was, deny that. I thought about this in many different ways because I'm like, well, this is the way we ascribe parenting. Mm. We're judging other races, other beings' parenting styles by our own, you know, what we desire. Yeah. But also, I think you've got the wrong dad. Really? <laughs> I think Pike's a daddy. So maybe that's why he didn't poll so well. Well, he's not the only daddy that you've identified in this show so oh, yeah. far this season. Is, is Tignatara is the daddy as mm. well. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I can see where you're going with that. Yeah. That's fair enough. <laughs> maybe we need another poll. <laughs> Will there be more daddies? We don't know. <laughs> uh, but maybe we'll find out next time. You've been listening to Rediscovery. All links to creatives are in the show notes or on our website, rediscoverypodcast.com. We'd love to connect with you. Please add us on Twitter and Facebook at Rediscovery Pod. Rediscovery is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. Find more entertainment for your ears at SplendidChaps.com.